Let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, so much for your grace to us that was manifested through Christ and the gospel, and we thank you that you are kind and patient with us. We pray for your grace as we look at this text in front of us, in Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, as I'm sitting out there and preparing to come up, I am often looking uh, my sermon and uh, last thoughts, and I'm doing a very minor course correction here, and I've decided not to share my opening illustration because there are some things that I think, the more I think about it, we ought not mention. And the point of my opening illustration is that we are a free, in a free fall in the West right now. And there's a story, and I'll only share that uh, the Methodist Church has accepted a drag queen as a candidate for ordination, and I decided I'm not going to read the whole story because we probably don't even need that. We are in a free fall here in the West, and the bottom has fallen out underneath us. And there is probably no verse, I think, that represents this more clearly, um, I guess maybe you guys need to do this, than Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 that simply says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We are in the West, in America, in culture today, in a nosedive, and things are not letting up. What, how do we live in the world that we are living in? One of the things to keep in mind is this. If you climb aboard the sexual revolution train, keep in mind that you are not in the driver's seat. It will take you to places that you do not want to go. Today's passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is another attribute about love. This is an odd way to begin a sermon on love. (laughs) Actually, two attributes that we're going to be looking at. And if I could summarize what this passage is about in front of us, I would say that this passage, or these two attributes of love, is the sin of, if I can say it this way, reversing the polarity. It is the sin of making that which is good evil and that which is evil good. And we have been in a series on 1 Corinthians, and for the last several weeks we've been in 1 Corinthians 13, and we kind of just tapped the brakes just a little bit, and we've been slowly going through these attributes of love, one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. And in today's passage on love, we are going to hear that love does not, if we can say it this way again, reverse the polarity. Keep in mind here that as we look at this text in front of us, we're not talking about a scenario where somebody falls into sin and feels remorse and guilt over that and says, I can't believe that I fell to this sin and I'm repenting and I'm turning. We need to repent when those things happen. But that's not what this is uh, about today. The text in front of us today is talking about a scenario 
where you do sin, but there is no guilt, there is no remorse, and you actually celebrate the evil that God hates and despise the good that God loves. That's what this is about today. And that is where we are as a culture today. As a society, we do not feel shame any longer for our sin. We celebrate our sin, we rejoice in our sin, we lift up our sin as good and right and just. And that is where the culture is today. But in order to counter this impulse that is going on in the West, in order to celebrate that which is good, we are going to need to do something very foundational, or we're going to need to know something very foundational. There is a prerequisite to loving the truth, as we're told we ought to do in the passage in front of us today, and that is we have to know truth. If you don't know where true north is, then how are you going to be able to go in that direction? And the problem is in the West is that we don't have a working compass anymore. And so we need a working compass if we are going to know what truth is and to celebrate it. And this brings us to one of the themes that we have been looking at for the last several weeks from the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, this theme has really been prominent from the beginning of 1 Corinthians. And that theme has to do with the relationship between two things, and that is the relationship between truth and love. What is the relationship between these two things? How do they relate to one another? How do they connect? How does the Bible put them together? And how do we live this out in our lives? Christianity, uh, I will remind us, is not truth at the expense of love or love at the expense of truth. We've seen before uh, in another sermon we did on 1 Corinthians how love and truth are kind of like uh, two wings on, on this plane. You need both of them. We, we need to be characterized by both as, as Christians. And there is a brand that some of us probably have um, seen before and perhaps even crept into our own lives to some degree, hopefully not, but there's a kind of dead theology where your theology never leaves your mind, and it's only academic. Um, it has no impact on you or on the world around you. And we've all seen someone like this. Maybe they have a brilliant mind. They can understand Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew and all of this stuff, and yet there's no change in that person's life. They've locked themselves up in their tower for so long that, you know, th their personality is, is like the personality of a Brillo pad, okay? There, there's nothing there. And worse than that, they never express their theology in any tangible way. They never end up loving others. And, of course, we know this is not what Christianity ought to be. Christianity is unique in that it touches the whole person, the entire person, the affections, the de de desires, your delights, so on and so forth. But keep in mind... Also, that Christianity is not love at the expense of truth. If you are the kind of person who says, don't get so uptight about theology, just love people, then I have to inform us that this is the kind of thinking that got us to where we are in the West today. It is because 
we have thrown theology out the window, that love now means anything that we want it to mean. Love needs a direction, it needs a destination, it needs tracks to guide it where it's going. And so we recognize that truth directs love, and love warms truth. And that is why we see in no uncertain terms the joining or the marriage of love and truth in the passage in front of us today. Let's go ahead and read this, 1 Corinthians 13, and we are on verse 6, and we simply are just going to look at two attributes of love today. It simply says this, it, that is love, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so these are really kind of the two points of our outline today. Number one, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And number two, love rejoices in the truth. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing is a rather straightforward attribute of love here. Love does not enjoy wrongdoing. It does not celebrate wrongdoing. We hate wrongdoing when we see it in others, and we hate wrongdoing when we see it in ourselves. This uh, phrase here appears... uh, pretty close, but a couple of different ways in other translations. Some translations render it, love does not delight in evil. Uh, another translation says, love finds no joy in unrighteousness. And another translation says, love takes no pleasure in evil. On this statement, Barnes observes this, uh, that it does not rejoice uh, over the vices of other men. It does not take delight when they are guilty of crime or when in any manner they fall into sin. You don't like to see other people fall in sin. It does not find pleasure in hearing others accused of sin and having it proved that they committed it. There's not that, ah, I know, I knew they did it. It does not find a, a malicious pleasure in the report that they have done wrong or in following up that report and finding it established. Wicked men often find pleasure in this and rejoice when others have fallen into sin and have disgraced and ruined themselves. And so as Barnes observes, there are numerous ways in which we might find ourselves rejoicing in wrongdoing. There are lots of ways to commit this error okay, of, of rejoicing in wrongdoing. We may, for instance, uh, join the world in celebrating the sins of this present age. The world celebrates infidelity, sodomy, murder, passivity, laziness, so on and so forth. To join any cause that is at odds with Scripture would be to celebrate that evil and the sins of this age. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. This does, though, this attribute of love, that it does not rejoice at wrongdoing has a corollary. And the corollary, hopefully, will be, once we hear this, will be, yeah, easy to understand it in this direction as well. And and this is the corollary. The corollary of love does not rejoice at wrongdoing is this. If you are rejoicing in wrongdoing, you are not loving. If you are celebrating evil, wickedness, sin, wrongdoing, then in that instance, you are not characterized by biblical love. And so it goes in both directions. Okay, so a couple of examples here. Um, the, remember the crowd? Jesus is about to be crucified, and they say, release Barabbas for us. Okay? They are advocating for something that is unjust, that is wrong. 
And therefore, we cannot say that they were characterized by love, because when you celebrate wrongdoing, you are not characterized by love. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And so if you're doing wrong, then you're not loving. Or take, for example, the sin of man-stealing that our own nation participated in. Those men and women who participated in this and taught that it was right were not loving. Or take a look at Nazi Germany. Those individuals who rejoiced in ethnic cleansing, they were not loving. Uh, Take the modern fascination as another example with sexual immorality. Those who celebrate it in any fashion, uh, in particular by devoting an entire month to it, are not loving because it's rejoicing in wrongdoing. 1 Corinthians 13 infuses love with meaning and direction and purpose. Love is this, but not that. Love does this, but not that. Love is characterized this way, but not this way. It's giving to us definitions and boundaries and characteristics, and it goes here, but it doesn't go here. This is love, this is not love. And it's very clear here that if you are rejoicing in wrongdoing, There are many things, of course, that could be said about you, but it cannot be said that you are characterized by love. You are not characterized by love if you rejoice in sin. But this is not the only way that we can do this. Remember I said there are several ways in which we can rejoice in wrongdoing. We can uh, rejoice in this by uh, celebrating something in our culture uh, like that. But sometimes we don't rejoice in wrongdoing for the sake of the wrong done, but for the sake of the destruction or the hypocrisy that it brings. In other words, sometimes we rejoice in what wrongdoing produces. Ever found yourself doing this before? Maybe some examples would suffice here. Sometimes we rejoice in the failures of others. Perhaps, for example, you find yourself envying one of your coworkers or not liking one of your coworkers. And suddenly you found out that your coworker was caught stealing from the company and they're fired. <laughs> yes! Rejoicing in wrongdoing. The problem comes when you rejoice in the wrongdoing that they committed. You say to yourself, ha, I knew he was a low down good for nothing. And I'm glad that he did that so that he would get fired kind of thing. You're rejoicing. You- Anyone ever done anything remotely like this? Okay. Somebody else does something wrong and you rejoice in that because it produces a desired result that you wanted it to produce. Even though you know that stealing is wrong, you rejoice in stealing because of what it produces. Someone else's ruin. Love does what? The opposite. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with what? The truth. And this is exactly what the next half of the verse says. Love rejoices with the truth. With regard to this phrase here, love rejoices with the truth, there is almost no difference in how translations render this phrase. Almost every translation that you will read renders it almost identical to this. And 
To be honest, this statement requires very little explanation. Love rejoices with things that are true, things that correspond to reality. Love rejoices with the truth, meaning that it does not commit the sin that we started off by saying here, where it reverses the polarity of truth. Love identifies that which is true, and it rejoices in that. Love, we might say, calls good good, and it calls evil evil. And so we opened up with Isaiah 5 and verse 20 that says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Do you see the relationship between Isaiah 5.20 and 1 Corinthians 13.6? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, rejoices with the truth. Okay, You're loving things that are true, and you are, and we ought to hate sin. Okay, We are hating that which is evil. And that's what Isaiah 5.20 is saying. It's saying, woe to you who didn't get 1 Corinthians 13.6 correct. Woe to you who flopped that in the opposite direction. Now, this is not the only passage. In fact, these are not the only two passages in Scripture that touch on this topic. There are a number of passages in Scripture that talk about the error and the sin of reversing the polarity, as I'm calling it. And I'm going to give you a few of them. I have uh, five of them here in addition to what we've already seen. Psalm 94, 21. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. You see, it's a reversal of justice. It's a reversal of that which is right and wrong. You're switching them so that you find those who are righteous and those who are innocent and you condemn them. Proverbs 17 and verse 15 is another verse, and it says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Again, flipping it so that we condemn the righteous now and we justify the wicked. Again, our culture is characterized by this, and we all feel the pull of this in our own hearts as well. Malachi 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? (laughs) Everyone who does evil, God delights in, in you. You're reversing the polarity here. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, let love be genuine Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Point the compass in the right direction. Romans 1.32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And of course, this comes on the heels of an entire list of things that God says uh, is sin. And then at the end of this list, he is saying... uh, There are people who not only practice these things, but they approve and applaud and affirm people who also participate in these things. You're you're reversing the polarity. That which is good is, is evil, and that which is evil is good. Now, the prerequisite here, so 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 1 Corinthians 13, 6 is telling us that we are to rejoice or celebrate that which is good or true. 
Now, there is a prerequisite to this that I referenced in the beginning, and we'll explore here a little bit, and that is you need to know where true north is. You have to have a compass that works so that you know what direction to go in. We might say it this way. You must know the truth in order to love the truth. If you don't know what the truth is, then how are you going to love it? And this is why theology and sound doctrine is so essential. Uh, I had a pastor say to me one time regarding um, the local ministerial group here in Orville. He said, when we get together, we don't talk about theology. We only focus on the things that we have in common. I would say that this sentiment is the predominant view in Christian evangelicalism today. The standard phrase goes something like this. Theology divides, love unites. But they're brought together in this very verse that we're talking about. Love and truth together are both here. There's a certain individual that I've had some conversations with, uh, and we talk about theology from time to time, and this person replies uh, when we talk about a lot of things and says, oh, that's just debating over how many angels can dance on the head of a pin uh, about justification by faith alone, as an example, was one of these things. I was talking with another pastor one time, and we started talking about the significance and importance of the virgin birth and how this doctrine is crucial to Christianity. And he replied to me, that's above my pay grade. I don't know anything about that. My point in sharing these illustrations is simply this. If you don't know truth, you can't love truth. How are you going to love it if you don't know it? How are you going to rejoice in the truth if you don't know what it is? How are you going to rejoice in the truth if every time someone wants to talk about truth, you dismiss it? Do you see how we've gotten where we are in our culture, in American evangelicalism today? It's because we have dismissed truth for so long that we don't know what it is anymore. Hence, what I was going to use as my opening illustration, where we have... We have an entire denomination who's saying we can ordain drag queen preachers, okay? Something has gone wrong here, and it happened when we said theology divides and love unites. This is the fruit of that thinking, which, by the way, that is a theological statement, ironically, (laughs) It's, it's, it's theology. If you can't love, if you don't know truth, you can't love the truth. Let, let, me, let, me, let me say it this way. Maybe it makes sense this way. Let's, let's say that you have an opportunity to talk to somebody who, does, who, who has never experienced what love looks like. Let, let's say perhaps you're ministering to, counseling, discipling uh, a, a young boy who spent his whole life in the foster system. And he's been in and out of families, and he's 
never been shown what love looks like from these families and has been all over the map. And you begin to develop a relationship with him and, and you notice that he himself is being cruel towards others and, and not loving and not kind. And, and in one sense, you understand this because he's never had a positive example, but you know that it's time to kind of confront this uh, young boy that you're counseling. And you say to him, you know, as a Christian, one of the most important things that we can do is be loving to other people. And let's say this boy responds to you and says this, okay, you want me to love other people. Can you tell me what that means? What does it mean to love other people? What, is it, what does it look like to love other people? How should I love other people? Whatever your answer to that boy is, whatever it is, whether it's good or bad or right or wrong, you're doing theology. In that moment, you're, you're, you're teaching doctrine. The, the moment you go into any of these things, the, the issue is not, am I going to teach, when I teach this boy what love is and explain to him, love does this, but love does not do this, and love acts this way, but not this way. When you're doing that, the issue is not, am I doing theology or am I not doing theology? The issue is, am I doing good theology or am I doing bad theology? That's, that's the issue. You're doing one of those uh, two things. The question, what is love, has a theological answer to it. Again, the question is not whether you will be giving theology, it is whether it will be good or bad theology. And if you are in the habit of dismissing doctrine, of dismissing theology, of saying theology divides, the Bible divides, scripture divides, then you are going to be ill-equipped to answer that boy's question. You won't be equipped to know how to tell him what it looks like, other than just the things that are bouncing around in your own head, whatever that is. Why? Because of what the text says. Love rejoices with the truth. Love enjoys and delights in the truth. It says, not I have to, to go to church or I have to read my Bible. I get to read scripture. And you say, I, I've heard of all these stories of these people in jail cells trading uh, a single leaflet of God's word and memorizing it and then passing it on to another cellmate. And I get to have the whole thing here in multiple translations. And some of you have dozens of Bibles in your home. We get to have the word of God, and we ought to delight in it, and we ought to cherish it, and we ought to love it. We ought not to say, <laughs> this thing just divides. Yes, it does. As one person has said, it divides truth from error. Okay? It does. And love divides, too, by the way, because it's theological in nature. Love rejoices with the truth. Love is married to truth. Here's the good news. We don't have to give up either one. Why do we act as if we had to keep one and discard the other? We can, why not both? How about truth and love together, as this verse is teaching us right here and right now? We don't have to give up truth, and we don't have to give up love. Love is the fire that warms our doctrine, while doctrine is the rail that directs our love. Doctrine gives direction to my love. This, but not this. Here, but not there. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. 
Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love doesn't go there. Love rejoices in truth. Love does go here. Okay? You don't know that without theology. So doctrine is the rail that this engine is driving on. Okay? And then love is warming our doctrine so that we're not um, kind of this cold, heartless uh, individual. The loveless Christian is a lifeless Christian. And the doctrineless Christian, and I think I made that word up, but that's okay. The doctrineless Christian is an aimless Christian. Okay, so let's back up a minute here and summarize this point. What does the verse say? It says this, love rejoices with the truth. This is what love does. If it's not doing this, it's, it's not love. It's something else. Okay? If, if, if it's not rejoicing in truth, if it's not celebrating and adorning the truth, it's not love. It's something else. And so what, what did we say about this? We said that if you are going to obey this verse, love rejoices with the truth, then you need to know what truth is. That's pretty straightforward, which means you have to know your Bible. Otherwise, you are at risk of reversing the polarity. You are at risk of celebrating falsehood and condemning truth. And that, of course, is the last place that we want to be. What, what did um, uh, Spurgeon say of Bunyan? Does anyone remember this? What, you prick him anywhere, and he bleeds. Bibline is the word he uses. He bleeds Bible. And th- this, is, this really is kind of what this verse is saying in a sense. Because it's, it's saying that it, whatever happens to you, your reactions are all Bible reactions. Okay? Someone physically abuses you, and you react with the right biblical response in that scenario. Somebody criticizes you, you react with the right Bible response in that area. Somebody falsely accuses you, and you respond with the right biblical response in that area. You bleed bibline. Everywhere somebody hits you, it's Bible coming back, Bible com- It's just everywhere. If you're going to love the truth, you have to know what it is, and you have to be able, it has to be coming out of your pores. Uh, one commentator, I think, put it well uh, when he said this. He said, love does not suppress the truth. Exchange it for a lie. Do anything against the truth or become upset when faced with the truth, no matter how uncomfortable it is. Um, and each statement he gave a uh, verse, and I'm just going to put these out there for you. But the first one he said is, love does not suppress the truth, Romans 1.18. Love does not exchange it for a lie, Romans 1.25. It doesn't do anything against the truth, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 13.8. And it does not become upset when faced by the truth. So let's look at these. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay. The context here is that you have unbelievers who are denying maybe the existence of God or something along those lines, and they are taking the truth that they know exists and they are suppressing it. According to 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love doesn't do that. 
So truth suppressors are not loving. They're not characterized by love. Characterized by something else, maybe selfishness or whatever. Okay? Romans 1.25. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. Love does not do this. Love does not say, I'm going to trade or exchange these. 2 Corinthians 13.8. We cannot do anything against the truth. Okay? Love does not work against the truth in any way. Galatians 4.16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Maybe, I think all of us could find something in these that we wrestle with. Maybe Galatians 4.16 is the hardest one for us, okay? Um, has your spouse ever come up to you and said, um, can we talk for a little bit? You know how you do this. Um, can you just knock it off? <laughs> Any husband, wife? ever done anything like that? Okay, some of you are nodding. If they are telling us the truth, then we need to love that truth. Thank you. The, the, we can be falsely accused and so on and so forth. I understand that. If they say, you're doing this, and this is against Scripture, and um, can you please stop that? Then here's what you say. Thank you. Can you please pray and that I would be able to do this? Okay. Instead of getting, none of you get angry about that, right? No one has ever done that. That's Galatians 4.16. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Um, and you can exercise wisdom on whether you quote that verse after they respond to that or not. But this is what's going, Right? This, we ought to love the truth even when, it's ex, when it's, it works against us. So truth sometimes works against our own interests, right? Um, to be honest on your taxes when you could cheat it works against your own interest, right? But you love the truth more than you love the gain that you get from that. See, our relationship with the truth as believers is that we love the truth, we cherish the truth, we desire the truth, we celebrate the truth, we rejoice with the truth. Why? Because God himself is truth. This is not, this is not some tangential thing out there off in the weeds. God is truth. That's why we love the truth, because it's, God is characterized by truth. Here's what this means. There is no attribute of God or truth in Scripture that you ought to be ashamed of. Now, this one may be a little bit hard to swallow for some of us. You ought not be ashamed by the wrath of the Lamb. It's an attribute of God. You ought not be ashamed of the doctrine of hell. And by the way... We ought to preach fervently that people would repent. I'm not saying that we don't do that, but I'm saying the doctrine itself is not something to be ashamed of. We ought not be ashamed of the Bible's condemnation of any sin because those things are truth. I'm not saying that we have 
I'm not, I'm not saying that we're, we're, we're jerks about this. No, we're, we're not saying, oh, I hope they go. No, we're not. We're preaching repentance. We're just saying that this is God's sense of justice is part of his character, and that's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to rejoice in. This is a celebration of the truth. We are not ashamed of the truth. Many Christians are walking around today ashamed of certain doctrines in the Bible, and they're content to whisper about those things. We are not merely to tolerate divine truth. We are not merely to accept divine truth. We are not merely to just love it kind of silently. We are to rejoice in the truth. And this rejoicing, I would say, is a public matter. Psalm 914 says that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. In the gates. This is not something that we uh, quietly go to our closets and just celebrate truth there. It's to be a public thing. All right, so where do we go from here? Today's passage gives us two attributes of love, and they are corollaries of one another. Attribute number one, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Number two, love rejoices in what? The truth. The reason that love is to be truth-loving is because God is truth, and thus to love God is to love truth. And so when we love the truth, we're being God-loving, and I want to give you a couple verses on this as well. John fourteen six, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. Okay? If you are dismissive of truth, of sound doctrine, then you are dismissive of the person of God himself. 1 John 5 and verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the what? Truth. Titus 1 and verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies. What does it mean if you never lie? You're a person of truth. <laughs> you tell the truth. Okay? Hebrews 6.18. Two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to what? To lie. It's impossible for God to do this. This is compatible with his sovereignty, by the way. But there are things that God does not do because it violates his own character and his own nature. And God does not lie because he is a God of what? truth. This all flows. Once again, the commands and imperatives in Scripture are not, I think we saw this last week a little bit, God is not saying, man, what can I keep them occupied with while they're down there? Let me uh, maybe love truth. It's not as if he's being arbitrary in this. It's flowing from the very, it's, it's coming from the fountainhead itself. God is truth, and therefore you love truth, and that shows that you love God. This is the uh, first and I think most important reality 
that God is truth and therefore we ought to love the truth. But there are other themes from this text, and I thought I'm just going to consolidate um, all of these themes that this text has said, and um, I've said all these already, but I'm just going to put them in one place for you. And so I've got six of them here. Um, And there's no particular order here. These are all themes from this particular passage. First one is this. You must know the truth in order to love the truth. Okay? If you're supposed to love the truth, then you have to know what it is. And to know what it is, you have to use your brain to understand and read things in the Bible and process it that way. Okay? Second one is this. If you are rejoicing in wrongdoing, then you're not loving, right? These are opposites of one another. If you are rejoicing and celebrating something that the Bible clearly condemns, then you're not characterized by love. That's the second one. The third one is this. Christianity is not truth at the expense of love or love at the expense of truth. What did we say? Love and truth are married to one another. They have to be. It's both and. It's not either or. It's not a smor- it's not a smorgasbord. You don't, you don't get to go to the Bible and say, I'm going to pick this but not this. Okay? It's the whole thing. That's number three. Number four is um, the prerequisite to biblical love is that you need to know where true north is. Um, you could say you need to have a working compass. Um, you have to be able to know what's right and what's wrong. And again, our culture has no compass right now. So you can't go there. You can't. If you're, if you're going to love the truth and, and be opposed to wrongdoing and therefore be loving, you can't. The world is not going to teach you the, where true north is. Okay, you're not, you're not going to get this from television or from movies or from school, or from public education, or from co-workers. It's from the Bible, right? And so we have to go there to know where this is. Uh, The next one is this. Love is the fire that warms our doctrine, while doctrine is the rail that directs our love. Um, So again, we need both but that's the relationship between the two. Um, We don't want to have a cold, lifeless doctrine, and so love warms that. But we don't want to have an aimless love that just approves of anything. Uh, And then the last one is the loveless Christian is a lifeless Christian, and the doctrineless Christian is an aimless Christian. Um, And so, again, we we want to be characterized by, by both. All right, with that in mind, we're going to conclude with the following points of application, four of them. Number one, study the word in order to know the difference between wrongdoing and truth. Straightforward. If you have to know where true north is, and you've got to know where to go to find that, and that's in Scripture. Number two, instead of undermining the importance of sound doctrine, set your affections on it. Love the truth. Instead of dismissing, downplaying it, set your love on it. Number three, oppose wrongdoing both publicly and privately. 
Oppose wrongdoing, especially when you see it in yourself. Ask others to speak into your life. Okay? Can you help me see blind spots that I have in my own life? And number four, in order to bring others to a love of the truth, preach the gospel to them. That, again, all these should be fairly straightforward. But if we are going to know what truth is and we are going to help other people to see this, we need to preach the gospel. Um, we are in a free fall in our culture. And we respond to this in different ways. And there is a place, and I think we ought to work as Christians for, let's say, legislation that is biblical. We ought to hope and pray and move our culture to accept laws that are good and reject laws that are bad, and we ought to work in our society and our culture. Um, But those things don't get to the heart. The gospel is what changes culture. Our society needs Christ. And our and, and they're not going to get it from themselves. They're not going to get it from focus groups, okay? They're going to get it from Scripture and from the church preaching the gospel to them. And so preach the word. Preach the gospel. This is the hope of our nation. This is the hope for our community. And if you are someone who doesn't know Christ, I would love to share Christ and the gospel with you because that is what recalibrates our compass to point to true north. Thank you, God, for today and your word. We thank you for the sufficiency that it is, and we pray that you'd help us to apply it, to love it, to enjoy it, and to be people who prioritize the truth in all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.